thankful to have all of you here with us this morning. If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 2. The good news about this series is some of you are, are new here to the church. Actually, several of you are new here to the church, and maybe some of you aren't familiar with the Bible. You only got to get to the first page, and uh, you're, you're right there with us. So uh, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be, right at the beginning of your Bibles. Let me say this real quick, too. Um, I just want to say thank you. As a, a pastor whose job, uh, uh, whose calling, God has called me to open this book and speak the truth of this book, um, whether that's easy or whether it's difficult. Sometimes when we uh, speak about things like we spoke about last week and we talk about a biblical foundation for gender, that's very difficult. I'm thankful to you guys for your encouragement over the last week, many uh, comments that have been made, and this, the encouragement on preaching the truth, and realizing that, like, most likely, we're a small enough church that most likely um, nothing, like, major bad is going to happen. But in understanding of where we're at in our culture today, like, something actually could happen. Um, but it's been an encouragement to me to know that the truth is received here um, and that, again, as I stand and open God's word, like I'm standing behind God's word, not my ideas, my thoughts, philosophies. Like I'm standing behind God's word, and all of us should be sitting under God's word. Myself, uh, as a pastor, you guys as a congregation, we all together sit under the truth of God's word. So I just wanted to say thank you on that. Um, and we've been continuing to, to work through like parking issues, continuing to work through seating issues. And so we try to preach on things that are really controversial, and then more people keep coming. So we're trying to free up seats, and it's not working. Uh, I want to, at the very end of the service today, we're actually going to talk about some of that. Um, and so stay tuned on that. But today we're going to talk about the foundation of marriage. Speaking of non-controversial issues... We'll talk about the foundation of marriage. I love how you can open to the very beginning of the Bible, the first couple chapters, and see God's design for so many different areas in life. Now, there's a couple ways that we can go about talking about and preaching on marriage, right? Uh, one of those ways is like to get really practical and, and to really talk about like practical ways to have a better marriage. And we're not against that. As a matter of fact, hopefully we're going to do that this summer uh, in one venue or another. We're going to do several weeks on just like how to have a good, strong, God-honoring marriage. We're going to work toward that. Uh, but, but the other way is to really talk about and think about and dig into, like, what is the foundation of marriage? Um, what is the doctrine of marriage, a theology of marriage? And that's where we're going to go today. Rather than uh, give you a lot of, like, really practical things related to, to how to have a better marriage, I want all of us to understand God's design, God's blueprint, God's understanding for biblical marriage. Because here's uh, what I believe. Whether you're here and you're married and have been married for a long time, you're here and you're newly married, as some of you are, you're here and you're married, but you're here by yourself and your spouse isn't here, um, you're, you were married and you're no mar not married any longer, either through death or divorce, you're single and you've not been married yet, I believe that all of us as Christians, if you're a Christian, should be able to articulate and defend and understand biblical marriage. Because biblical marriage is a foundation of biblical society, as we're going to argue today. So this message should have something for all of us. Uh, some of you, when you saw in the bulletin uh, this earlier this week that we're talking about marriage, you're like, oh, I can check out. I can like make sure that my NFL draft stuff is up to date during church, or I can de definitely check on some new recipes if you're a guy. We can really work on some of those things, right? 
This has something for all of us, and I want us to, together to be able to understand and articulate what God's Word has to say about marriage. So there's, there's a definitive passage on biblical marriage, and it's Genesis 2, 18 through 25. As we've been studying this, realize the context, if you read Genesis 1 and then read chapter 2, you may think, like, kind of, what's going on there? Well, Genesis 1 gives us the, the understanding of God's creation as a whole. Then Genesis 2, he kind of zooms in on specifically how that went with the creation of the first man and the first woman. So they're parallel accounts that tell different details. And so in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we saw last week, God created humanity. God created humanity, male and female. And God created humanity for each other. Remember, those were three of the things that we talked about last week. And now in chapter 2 today, we'll talk about like how does that work that God created man and woman for each other, and, and, and specifically, how does that relationship work in a biblical context? That's what chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 is about. So I'm just going to read through and uh, make some comments, and we'll talk through the text, see what the text has to say, and then at the end of that, I'm going to give you what I hope to be a biblical definition uh, of marriage. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, after he had created everything, he had created man, uh, man, male is the only uh, person on earth, Adam is the only person alive at this point in the narrative. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Ladies, we talked about this last week, and we all said, amen. This is, ladies, you can speak in church. Go ahead, it's your chance, right? Amen. All of you are looking at your spouse. You're like, I know. We go for a girls weekend, anything. It's not good. It's not good that a man should be alone. Let's talk about that idea of not good. Because I know what you're thinking, right? Air fryers and other fryers and takeout food and lots of guns and, okay? When he says it's not good, that's against the context. Genesis 1.31 says that when God had created everything, he looked at it all and he said that it was all very good. But while man, Adam, is the only human alive on earth, God looks and he says this is not good that man should be alone. And we laugh and we joke, but there's actually something very significant about that. And here's what it is. There's in that some perceived level, some, some idea of insufficiency. There's something that's lacking. Men, without women, there's something lacking. Guys, this is your chance. There we go. Okay, right? And, and, and realize that we're speaking holistically about creation. This does not mean like for every individual, okay? But the way that God has designed humanity to work, that man without woman is completely lacking. Can you imagine... Okay? Let's just even take all the current craziness of sexuality out of it. And if there were just a bunch of dudes running around, there was no such thing as women. Ladies, just work with that for a second. Can you imagine what this world would look like? No. It wouldn't be here anymore. We'd have destroyed it already. Right? He says it's not good. It's, it's this. It's not fully functioning. When God looks at, at Adam by himself, and he's given Adam a job to do, and he's given Adam some, some work and some dominion, some things like that, and he looks at Adam, he, he looks at the man, and he says, this is not good that he should be alone. It's that there is something left to be wanting, that there's something that's lacking. And when he says the word alone, it's not good that he should be alone. Here's another thing that's interesting. Is Adam really completely alone at this point? 
No, he's been talking to God, walking with God. Adam and God are living in relationship with each other. You think, wow, God calls Adam alone, but Adam has a relationship with God. And we would argue that your most important relationship is your relationship with God, right? But for whatever reason it is, by God's design, it's God and it's Adam. And God says, that's not good enough. Man needs more. One of the things is that, that nobody's meant to live in isolation. As people, we're not meant to live in isolation. That is true from understanding God as a Trinitarian God, to understanding how God creates relationship to work, that we're not meant to live in isolation. Man needed something more. Eve was like the missing puzzle piece. We have, we have puzzle people here. You like to put together this puzzle. So let's see your hands. It's okay. You're not nerds. It's really good. It's right i got family who like to put together puzzles and you've had this experience you get the 1500 piece out the 2000 piece out you lay that rug thing down so that if you put it together then you can roll it up you know what i'm talking about some of you are like no like this is a cool invention because if you need to use the dining room table and it's covered in puzzle we need to figure out how to put it away amazon okay (laughs) where was i going no just kidding you lay that puzzle out, you put that puzzle together, and you're going and getting it done, and this has happened multiple times at our house, and then what happens at, right at the very end? You've got to be kidding me. I have 1,499 pieces, and one is gone, and what do you do? You start looking, don't you? You're looking everywhere. You're looking under the little rug thing on the table. You're moving it around. You're, getting the, you're moving the chairs. You're moving the carpet. You get out the vacuum cleaner. You start vacuuming. You dump that out. You're looking for it. You find everything but that. There's a couple of old earrings. You can't find the puzzle piece. And the puzzle is not complete without the last piece of the puzzle, right? Man is not complete without woman. There's something lacking. It is not good that man should be alone. And then he says this, I will make a helper fit for him. I'm talking about a loaded word. Helper. Hmm. You're all, there's like, you know, 200 of you looking at me. And about 100 of you with like really glaring eyes. What's he going to say? Is this going to be the day I leave this church? They won't have seating problems much longer, will they? I'm out of here. My problem is, is no matter what I say, somebody's ticked. (laughs) No. God is laying out his blueprint for how male-female, husband-wife relationships work. And I think this is so beautiful. If you're using the English Standard Version, it says, I will make a helper fit for him. And then there's a little footnote where it says it's actually a helper corresponding to him. That's really important for us to understand. And actually next week, I'm going to spend the whole week talking about gender roles and something called the cultural mandate and the roles of men and the roles of women and how we together have dominion uh, over the earth that God's called us to. So I'll leave that for next week. But a couple things you need to know that when God created Eve as Adam's helper, he was creating a partner, not an assistant. Okay. He was creating a partner, not an assistant. He was not creating a housekeeper. He was not creating a nanny. He was not creating a grocery service. He was not creating a sex object. He was creating an equal partner. Everything in the text indicates that there's equality in status. From chapter 1, man and woman, mankind being created in the image of God, there is equality in personhood. There is equality in status. There's equality in all ways, but there is a difference in roles. 
we believe and understand and value men and women both created in the image of God. There's no shadow of inferiority in this text. One of the things that has happened is that misogynistic religious men, chauvinistic religious men, have used texts like this and like Ephesians 5 to give themselves absolute authority, they think, over women without ever looking at what the text is really talking about and the responsibility that God has given men. Without giving too much from next week away, men, we have been saddled and shouldered with an immense responsibility to lead as God's co-regents. And it's all about responsibility. And God has given us these indispensable partners as women. Indispensable partners. I can't do what God has called me to do without the indispensable partner that he's given me. We are equal partners with very different roles. And I'll use an illustration. It might like fly over some of our heads, but I think that the, the illustration of ballroom dancing is a good one. If you watch those like old like Jane Austen, those movies like made off of Jane Austen novels and the guys are dancing and the ladies are dancing and I'll stop dancing because my wife is nodding at me to stop. That's weird. It happens all the time. Right? But in ballroom dancing, you have a man who is leading and you have a woman who is following, and together they're both vitally important. Right? Are they both equally important to that dance? What if you take the girl away and the guy's standing there by himself? I practice this all week. No, I'm just kidding. Right? That's weird. That, there's a problem with that. When those two partners come, and we won't even talk about two dudes dancing together. We'll talk about that a different time, right? That should never happen. But ballroom dancing, you have a man and you have a woman, and they're equal, but they have different roles. And when they do the roles the proper way, and they do the things that the way that they're supposed to be done, it's a beautiful thing. You can look at it, and you can say that there's some design in that, that there's some beauty in that, that there's something inherent in that that is, in fact, a, a good thing. That's what helper means, it means an indispensable partner, not an assistant or some crazy thing like that. So God looks at me and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to create a helper that's suitable for him, that's, that is his equal partner. And then I like verses 19 and following. Because remember we're talking about the puzzle piece and the search that goes on for that puzzle piece? That's actually what Adam has to go through. And gentlemen, especially young gentlemen, it is good for you to have to search for a woman. Maybe not right this minute, but it is good to have to search and to seek and to go after a woman. JC remembers when he had to go after Chrissy. He had to chase, right? Okay. Yes, he does. All right. Look at verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to Adam to see what he called them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Adam's got a job to do. He's got work to do. He's doing his thing, and God has given him work to do, and he's naming all these animals. And you can imagine Adam standing there, and the animals are walking by, horse, duck. I don't know what that is. Platypus, okay, right? He's naming the different animals, and he's doing his thing. It says, verse 20, The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. You wonder what's going through Adam's mind at this point? He's like, none of these things look at all like me, and I feel like something's just wrong, right? And he's like, okay, moving on. It'd be cool to see something kind of like me. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There's a search. 
There's a search that's happening. Adam, real, like the, the text is actually telling us, why would God tell us about him parading all these animals in front of Adam? If we're not supposed to understand, like, there's a search going on. And I don't remember if you guys, if you men remember what it was like, those of you who have been married for a long time, to be single. But number one, not good, okay? Like, when I was a bachelor and, you know, before we got married, like, I had an apartment. And the decorations of that apartment was like outdoor gear, right? We just hung hooks on the wall and climbing ropes and climbing harnesses. We had a 13-foot kayak, sea kayak, me and my roommate, a 13-foot kayak in a 10-foot apartment. It was not a good thing, you know? But there was this sense of, of needing something. So verse 21, God's going to take care of the problem. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept. He took out one of his ribs. He closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of man, he made or built is actually the word there. He built into a woman and brought her to the man. There's a lot of cool stuff with that right there. Um, the word rib is an interesting word. It just really means he took, took her out of his side. Uh, and, and made that, and all, some Jewish rabbis went crazy with that, and uh, it's some interesting stuff. They said that like Adam was this androgynous male-female person, and this was the dividing of male and female. If you hear anybody say that, run the other direction. That's not true, okay? But what is happening here is that God is creating, as we know, not from the head so that she would rule over him, not from his feet, as Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said, so that he could trample over her, but out of his side because she was his equal. And Matthew Henry, actually, the old commentator, said she was created out of his side to be his equal under his arm so that he could protect her and care for her and close to her heart so that he could love her. And I, I like that picture anyway that there's something about God building this woman specifically for the man um, to be that ideal and identical partner. And it says that he brought her to the man. How many of you have experienced a wedding day? Men, just men. How many of you have experienced a wedding day? Come on. Four men. Okay, lots of you. Come on, right? I want you to think back to your wedding day because that was the best day. And I, I fully realized... As we stand here in the 21st century, I talk about this, that there may be a lot of different things associated with your thoughts about your wedding day. But as you sit next to, if you're married right now and you're sitting next to that woman, I want you to think about the day that God gave her to you. Because you know what? That's what happened. Like Mark Wagner gave me his daughter. And I love Dr. Wagner. I had to go to his office and I was scared to death at Northwest Baptist Seminary as like a 23-year-old kid. I mean, I was freaked, and, and I knew him, and I, we, you know, we had a good relationship, but I was physically shaking, and I went into his office, and I'm, uh, I, uh, just, I just wanted to talk to you about, can I marry your daughter, right? And he's like, well, let's talk. I'm like, no. <laughs> but on my wedding day, her dad gave me his daughter, but you know what is even more significant? On my wedding day, God gave me his daughter, Right? On my wedding day, God said, here's one of my daughters. You take care of her. This is who I created for you. You protect her, provide for her, be her spiritual leader, be her spiritual guide. You cause her to flourish. And God gave me one of his daughters. And can I just tell you something? Best day of my whole life. As a matter of fact, I was going to put our wedding video up. I have it. Can I show it? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to show it. I'm not going to show it. But I want you to look at Adam's look at Adam's words when that happens. So God, verse 22, uh, God took the man, uh, made the woman, brought her to the man, verse 23. And then the man said, oh, you ready? 
there's these two little words, and I've missed them for a long time, but look at this. He says, this, at last, yes, I never saw those words before this week, and I'm reading, and I'm studying, and the commentator points it out, at last, you know what he's saying, finally, oh, it's not about the platypus, it's not anymore, it's not about the horse, or the, the dog's not my new best friend, finally, Right? The only one that it could be. And Adam was blown away by his bride on his wedding day as he sang this song to her. And he says, at last, wedding day excitement. And I remember, like, I get made fun of because on my wedding video, I'm standing at the altar at, the, at Northwest Baptist Seminary at the chapel. I'm standing up there, and the video is being shot from the back coming forward. And so you can see the back of Lynn's and her dad walking forward. And one day I was, like, upstairs, and some people had gotten, some kids had gotten my wedding video or watching it downstairs. I just heard roaring. And I go down there, and I'm like, what? They're like, watch what you do. And she's walking down the aisle, and I make the goofiest face. I literally bit my lip. I went, mmm. I, I seriously, I had to replay it like four times. Like, I really did that? I did the, oh. Everybody else was looking at her, and nobody was looking at me, but the cameraman was looking at me. But I was like so blown away. I was so blown away. That's Adam. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's saying, this is my flesh and blood. This is the one that was made for me. There's no one else that would do. There's nothing else that could do. This is the highest human relationship. And then verses 24 and 25. Actually, this is the basis of biblical marriage. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. This is an editorial comment on what's just been told, right? Because he's going to talk about man having a father and mother and, and leaving them and, and all that. So obviously this is the person who's, who's writing this. This is Moses talking about how what we just read and talked about in the creation account, how that applies to people and generations following. He says, therefore, because of what we just saw with Adam and Eve and the perfect complement and companion and helper and, and Adam's craziness and his need... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. And in that day, men didn't leave their fathers and mothers, right? As a matter of fact, multi-generation, multiple generations of men lived in the same household together. It was the women who actually physically left. But he's talking about something deeper than just physically leaving. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cleave, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the basis of biblical marriage, and, and I want to give you a definition of biblical marriage that I think comes directly out of those two verses, and hopefully in some ways is a response to some of the things that we see marriage being defined as today. So I'll put it on the screen, then we'll walk through it uh, piece by piece, because this is so important. And I want you to see, again, that it just comes out of the text of Scripture. Biblical marriage is the exclusive and permanent spiritual, civil, and physical union of one heterosexual biological man and one heterosexual biological woman. And look, I tried to pare it down. I tried to pare it down. I tried to take some of those words out, and then I just thought about the crazy ways that people, like, reinterpret, misinterpret. Like, if we could leave out the biological one, then that leaves room for stuff. If we leave out the heterosexual one, that really leaves room for stuff, right? And then I wrote that all out, and I put it on the PowerPoint, and I realized, man, I messed up. I left something out. Because this, all of that, 
But the thing I didn't add at the end is that you can't be related to each other. There's a guy in Kentucky that would read this and totally be like, hmm, yeah. He's looking at his first cousin thinking, like, I could totally, uh, I can be down with that definition of biblical marriage. So you have to have over and over and over again, we have to keep continuing to, like, redefine biblical marriage and add new things and new words because of all the different ways that people are trying to misdefine marriage. But as I hope you see, as we go through this almost word by word, this just comes from Scripture, and this is God's design. This is God's blueprint. So let's just move forward. The exclusive and permanent. Let's talk about those two words. When the text, in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, talks about a man and a woman, he's talking about one man and one woman. When he talks about them becoming one flesh, there's the idea of there being an exclusive exclusivity and a permanence to what's happening here. And if you wonder about that, you can take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew 19. I'm concerned I don't hear pages turning, and that means everybody has digital Bibles. We're really going downhill. If you guys could grab those Bibles out of the pews and just make them sound like you're turning pages, I'll feel a lot better. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. So Jesus leans on Genesis 2 when he's talking about the permanency of marriage. And he says this, The Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And you may know if you've read much about like Jewish history that, that they were actually doing that, that the guys who made the rules were making up rules so that they could divorce their wives if they burnt the toast in the morning. You're like, it was really that bad? Oh, it was really that bad. They were making up special rules and laws to just be able to push aside their wives. And in doing so, they were just completely undercutting and undermining the permanency of biblical marriage. And so they want to ask Jesus about this. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them what? Male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, Jesus puts a stamp of approval on that and says, this is the foundation of, of permanency in marriage. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to, to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another man, another uh, commits adultery. And I, this isn't a message on divorce and remarriage and those kind of things, because I, I do believe that there are stipulations, that there are reasons, that there, there come times when that is the only option. I'm not here to, to argue that, but what I want you to see is that Jesus is arguing from Genesis 2 on the permanency and the exclusivity of marriage. One man, one woman, together. As we know, um, there's lots happening and going on in our culture right now where marriage is just being undermined. And I think we'll see more of that in just a second. But the divorce rates and the statistics, 50%, 60%, sometimes even more in some places. And it's interesting, too, by the way, that the statistics aren't going up a whole, whole lot. If you look at it, like divorce rates aren't increasing a whole lot. You know why that is? Because fewer and fewer people are even bothering to get married. You can't get divorced if you don't get married, right? But it all comes down to something called commitment. 
And that's what biblical marriage is founded on. So it's exclusive and it's permanent. I want to talk about the spiritual aspect of marriage. Those words where it says, the man shall leave his mother and hold fast, in my translation, some of you know leave and cleave, shall leave and hold fast, and, and the word one flesh. Those are what the Bible knows as covenantal terminology. And covenants are really important in the Bible. God made covenants with people, his people, um, and you're familiar with those. But one of the primary differences between secular marriage and biblical marriage is, is the idea, the difference between a contract and a covenant. So a contract is something where two people go and they come together and they make a bilateral agreement. I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. You're going to hold up your side. I'm going to hold up my side. I'm going to make sure you hold up your side. You're going to make sure I hold up my side. We're going to kind of hold it maybe even over each other's heads a little bit. If you think about contracts that you've signed for things before. And then if you break your side of it, then I'm free to get out. If I break my side of it, then you're free to get out. And we've kind of got a contract. Well, the, the biggest problem with the contract is that it's all focused on me getting what's my right. And it's all focused not on commitment, but on my own rights. The difference in a biblical covenant is when each person that stands at the altar says, these are my vows, this is what I'm promising to you. And the man makes a unilateral promise to the woman. And the woman makes a unilateral promise to the man. They're each saying, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain no matter what. So when things get tough, and if you've been married more than 15, 20 minutes, you realize, like, things are going to get tough, right? But when things get tough, if you've got a contractual obligation, it's really easy to start looking at that contract. Like, you went out of the contract, I kind of went out of the contract. What do you think? Yeah, let's get out of the contract, Right? But covenants are not so easily made and they're not so easily broken. As a matter of fact, covenants are entered into in reverence, in like true sobriety. Like we've really, really understood the weight of what we're doing. And we've entered into this covenant with this other person. And then they're very, very, very hard to break out of. The spiritual aspect of marriage is that it is a covenant between two people. And in some ways, God's covenant with his people reflects that. Think about some of the, the language. When we talk about God and his relationship with people, think about the idea of steadfast love. Is steadfast love important in a marriage? Steadfast. Not like, man, I really feel like I love you today, but man, you burned the toast, so I don't know that I love you anymore. How many times have people gotten divorced because I don't feel like I love you anymore? That's not steadfast love, right? Steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiveness. You ever had to forgive your spouse? My wife hasn't, but most people have. <laughs> and now I need forgiveness again. <laughs> sacrifice, right? Sacrifice. Like the sacrifices of marriage, the patience that it takes. All of those things are representative of God making covenants with his people. And those are all things that, that the marriage covenant should have as part of it. You see, when two people come together in marriage, there is a spiritual aspect to that. And we always talk about your relationship with each other and your relationship to God. But entering into that covenant with each other is what makes it a spiritual act. There's also a civil peace, in case you're wondering about that. Like, what does that mean by a, a, a civil peace? Well, there's a, a public 
declaration. As a matter of fact, as you go back to that text in verse 24, uh, that's what I was alluding to a few minutes ago, where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And again, typical in, in ancient Near East, and especially in ancient Israel, the guy may not have physically changed locations, bought his own house, moved, and done his own thing. Often, multiple generations of the same family of men lived in the same house, a patriarchal society. That's kind of how they cared for each other and, and how it worked. But what he is talking about here is when he says that he is to leave, he's talking about a public declaration. And that day, a public declaration would have been made. The man would have stood in front of people, maybe a little different than we do today, but he would have made a public declaration to the village and to the people that were around. He would have said, I have a new pledge to a new person. I have new loyalties. There's a new commitment. My ultimate commitments are to a new person. There's a new social arrangement. We may live in the same house as my parents, but there's a new social arrangement. And all of that was a piece of it. Part of the reason we do religious wedding ceremonies is for that public declaration that that man and that woman, as they sit there together, they're saying, I have new allegiances. I have new commitments. So very thankful of this truth in my own life because, again, I love my wife's parents. But I'm so thankful that early on in our marriage, the decision was made, and she's actually the one that made it, that when we had problems and fights, that she wasn't just going to run back to dad and start talking to dad about all of it. That we work out our own problems before we run back to mom and dad and talk to them about it. Why? Because there's a new level of commitment. One of the great things about this church is that there are so many multi-generational families sitting out in front of me today. you got great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and kiddos, right? And I know that some of the difficulties that this can be, that understanding that that new family unit is a family unit before God. And mom and dad have to relinquish some of those rights and relinquish some of the controls and some of that type of stuff. But like at the end of the day, that is a public commitment that's being made. And it comes from scripture. Some people will say, well, we're married in God's eyes. Doesn't that count? Like we, nobody else needs to know we're married in God's eyes. Well, in God's eyes, he wants other people to know that you've made a public commitment. Someone comes to me and says, like, you know what? We're not going to get married, have a ceremony. Do all, we're just going to kind of consider ourselves married, and we're going to move in together and live together. And we kind of, we feel like we're married, so we're married. I would go to Genesis 2.24 and say, but what about the public commitment? What about the leaving and the cleaving? It's not just the idea of the fact that, like, I'm, I'm moving out of my house and moving into someone else's house. You're leaving one set of, of commitments behind and starting a, a whole new level of commitment. And this is vitally important for a, a biblical marriage. So it's not only civil. I know, the girls up here up front are probably like, oh boy, really? Physical. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But here's the thing, is that we always think about like one aspect of that. And that is an aspect. And I will talk about it, don't worry, just briefly. But there's so much going on with the idea of becoming one flesh that is not specifically sexual. What he's talking about is personhood. He's talking about one whole person, all of their emotions and all of their experiences and all of their feelings and all of their possessions, all of their things, and another whole person coming together, making a new identity. That's why we change our name when we get married. That's why when my wife and I do pre-marriage counseling, we always counsel the couple to have a joint bank account together because your stuff is coming together. Your emotions are coming together. Your baggage, by the way, is coming together, 
right? That's why pre-marriage counseling is important. And that's why during marriage counseling is sometimes also important. Because when we become one flesh, it's talking about all of two people coming together. And, and as we're able to do that, life works the right way. There's kind of like three pillars um, that, that marriage works on in, in some, some ways. We've talked about this several times. But three basic ideas. I want you to think about passion and intimacy and commitment. Think about those three big ideas. Passion, intimacy, and commitment. All three of those things are tied together to make a good, strong marriage, right? Is passion important? Men, is passion important? Remember that whole like, yes! Remember the whole bite my lip thing and all? That's passion. Like, I am excited to be married to this person, right? There should be some feelings, some emotion, some excitement. There should be lots of passion. Now, if passion is the only thing that we have and then there's no like feeling and intimacy, there's no commitment, uh, how long is it going to last? You ever light a sparkler on the 4th of July? Yay! Woohoo! Oh, it's out, right? That's why relationships that are built only on passion don't work. So there's passion. There's also intimacy. Intimacy is like talking together, caring about each other's feelings, wanting to know each other more, learning each other's love language, getting closer relationally and emotionally with each other. That's when you go out to coffee, you date each other, you do those kind of things, that the intimacy piece is important. And then the commitment piece is the vital foundation, that we've made a covenant and we're together. And you think about passion and intimacy and commitment and all three of those things working together and cultivating all three of those pieces together... Like, all of that together is what I mean by, like, the physical union of a man and a woman. And yes, sexual intimacy is a piece of that. And we believe that sex has a spiritual component. That, as I've said before, and if you're not a wine fan, okay, but, like, you wouldn't take an amazing bottle of wine and then uncork the wine and then get a red Solo cup and pour it in and be like, here, enjoy that, right? And what I've said, and I'll just leave it at this, is that the wine amazing wine of sex is meant for the chalice of marriage only that's how it's meant to be enjoyed that anything outside of that it's not just sin because we're prudish right it's not like oh those christians they don't know how to have fun if you try it before you buy it you have a way better chance of success no you don't you know that's statistically not true right what we are for is that we want to treat the act with the respect that god treated it with that we want to give it the value because we believe that God created that for value and that the wine belongs in the chalice, not anywhere else. That's all I'll say on that one. Union. The word union is an important word in this definition because of what I just talked about, the idea of commitment. The marriage commitment is entirely different from the way that the world is approaching relationships between people. We live in what's been called a hook-up, shack-up, break-up, repeat culture. You think about college. You think about how the world, you think about how your favorite Netflix show shows how you relate with people. I've had people in this room tell me, like, as they were getting ready to get married, that people at their workplace just, like, couldn't even fathom the idea that they didn't live together first, right? The try-it-before-you-buy-it culture. There's no commitment in that. 
That's why for me it's so important and so vital that we talk about we don't we don't do the hook up, shack up, break up, repeat, hook up, shack up, break up, repeat, right? Because that just leaves carnage in its wake. Relational hurt, relational baggage, all of the messes that that creates. That God's design and God's blueprint wants something better for you than that. Like God really desires something better for you and your relationship than that. And that's why commitment is so important. That's why as we think about our own daughters and as we think about young men and young ladies in this church that we want to see commitment being made. And we believe that in the, a, a good dating or courtship process that that can be, uh, that can flourish. And as we think about helping people to understand the importance of commitment, we don't start with the passion. And if we like the passion, then maybe we'll do a little bit of the intimacy thing. And then if that really works out real well, then we'll make the commitment. Because is that really commitment? Right? No. If I have to test drive the car for six months to decide if I like it, I'm not really committing. We make the commitment, and then we grow the things around that. Why? Because the commitment is the foundation. And then we can grow the passion. We can grow the intimacy as a result of that. So that's so important. Last piece. It's a big long one. One heterosexual biological man. One heterosexual biological woman. Does anyone need me to explain that any further? I'm not sure how to. But I do want you to see that the entire text is based on this idea. Like the entire text of Genesis 1 and 2 says one man who was created as a man with one woman who was created as a woman who are in love with each other that have passion for each other that are experiencing intimacy with each other that have made a commitment to each other that's how marriage is supposed to work to me and again these are my words that i've tried to discern from scripture and put together so there's probably stuff that's missing or ways that it could be said differently but to me, this gets at what Genesis 2 is, is talking about. And here's why that's important. Anything that falls outside of that may be called marriage. It may be condoned as marriage. It may be even celebrated as marriage. But it's not marriage in God's eyes. It's not biblical marriage in God's eyes. As Christians, not just at this church, but as, as evangelical Christians who believe the Bible, we have a high view of marriage and here's why. We have a high view of marriage because God had, has a high view of marriage. As God began his world and he began to form culture, he could have done anything that he wanted. It was a blank slate. This was his blueprint. What I'm reading and explaining to you is God's blueprint, was God's design. And here's one of the primary outworkings of that, is that marriage is a building block of society. Marriage is one of the great building blocks of society. You want to look at societies that, that begin to crumble and, and the downfall. Look at the marriages. It's just, that's how it is. People will say like, man, as Christians, you're so closed-minded. That, that definition of marriage is so closed-minded and is so intolerant and all of these things. But imagine a world where everyone actually lived by God's blueprint for marriage, right? I started to write down some of the areas that that would impact. Obviously, it impacts, like, how people go about dating. It impacts how people go about, like, sexual activity. Think about how that impacts childbearing and child-rearing, how we bring up our kids. Think about how it, how it, how it uh, relates to relationship 
pain. Most of the people in this room have dealt with some sort of relationship pain related to somebody acting outside of that up there, right? Think about the relational pain. Think about anxiety. Think about depression, absentee parenting and all the problems that that's causing in our society right now even things like work-life balance and stress and all that i would say that if you draw a line from all of those different things you can draw it back to how a society views and understands and values marriage as our foundation as a society as our foundation of marriage continues to crumble you will continue to see those outworkings in a variety of places throughout our culture but here's the good news we can be different. We can be different. Like, no matter where you've been, no matter where you are sitting in the pew right now, it can be different. God heals broken marriages. Somebody say amen, because we know that's true. Like, God heals broken marriages. And, and maybe in your past, that marriage is broken beyond repair, and God can bring newness to you even in a new relationship, a new marriage, and can grow that. For those of us who maybe are married and are excited about being married, that God can continue to use that. For some who maybe are married and not so excited about being married, God can bring that excitement. Like we can be different because we're talking about God's blueprint. Because we're talking about not just our own ideas or something that we're making up on our own. But I want you to know wherever you're at today, some of you who are single and want to be married, God has great things in store for you as well. And maybe for some of you who are single and you're like, I'm happy to be single, I would say there is an important and a vital place for you in the kingdom of God. You're not a lesser person in any way. Let's remember, who was single? Jesus. Pretty important, right? Right? The Apostle Paul, as far as we know. Like a lot of the disciples, yes. God's design. I want to follow God's design. So as we do every week, I tell you about the sermon supplement that's on the website because I can only say so much here. On there, you'll find questions to help you think through and work through some of what we're talking about. In addition to that, um, you'll find three resources this week. There's two articles that are really good, um, and then there's a book that I especially like. Um, so that's on the front page of our website grab a hold of that, and, and again, hopefully we continue to build our biblical worldview.